Hear the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of the scriptures and cover so many topics that affect our lives. And as we sit under your word now, would you give us hearts that would be responsive, that would be teachable, that would also be attentive that we would set our minds to study the things that you're teaching us and that you would take the truths of your word and apply them into our community here so that our life together may honor the name of Jesus. And so we need your spirit to guide us into all truth. Come and be our teacher now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at an interesting passage uh, where the Apostle Paul tells a church the Corinthian church, which has a a number of people that are uh, taking each other to court over financial matters. He says to them, as Christians, you should not be taking each other to court, but um, you should be able within the church to handle disputes that you have with one another. And in a sense, he's saying that there should be a court within the church. Just as our legal system has a court, the church should also have a court. It was kind of convenient that we happened to actually, you know, I, I planned to be at this place in 1 Corinthians two years ago when I was planning my preaching schedule. And here we are that this afternoon we're going to be electing elders in our church. And this is the week that we're talking about a passage that says that there should be wise men among you who handle disputes in the church. And um, if you're visiting with us, we're a Presbyterian church. And the, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbuteron, which means elder. And, uh, you know, you might think that's kind of odd that a denomination or a church is named after this, the government of the church, the elders who oversee the church. But, um, uh, but actually, Presbyterian government is structured around three levels of courts. There's uh, the local church level, which is our church, has something called a session of elders, and then there's a regional body of, of pastors and, and churches called a presbytery, which in our presbytery is Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And then there's a national court called General Assembly. And, you know, you might think, how strange. The church has courts in it. You, you might think that sounds very unspiritual, but the, that exact kind of thing is something that's being dealt with here in 1 Corinthians because you, you look at what it says here in verse 4. So if you have such cases, the Apostle Paul says to this church, so if you 
have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Paul says that congregations like ours are supposed to appoint wise men who are, supposed to, who are, are gentle, who are caring, that care about the community, and who resolve conflicts that come up within the church. And, you know, if you think that's kind of an unspiritual thing, the Bible is all about God forming a community, forming a family. You know, the whole Old Testament's about that. God chooses the people of Israel, and this is his chosen people. And then the New Testament, he has uh, uh, the church, which is his people. And the Bible is very unsentimental about community. You know, when we think about community, we think about, you know, we're going to share life together. We're going to love one another. Everything's going to be happy. And yet the Bible is very realistic. It says it knows that when Jesus gathers us all together, we're all a bunch of sinners who are going to be bitter and we're going to be greedy and we're going to be selfish and we're going to hurt one another. And so we need to have a system in place. We need to think through how are we going to resolve the disputes that happen in our midst. And the way we do that is by appointing elders to do that. And so uh, here we are this morning. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking about elders. And you know, some of you maybe have been in churches where there is a kind of sense of oppression or injustice, the way people are treated in the church. If you've been in that kind of church, you know that the electing of elders is crucial for the health of a, a church community. It's crucial that you think through it and you think carefully about who these men are. And so uh, this morning, so that we don't become that kind of church, we are going to uh, be answering just two questions. This is what they are. First of all, what are elders? And second, what should be their character? What should you be looking for in elders uh, that you appoint and you elect uh, to, to rule in a congregation, to govern in a congregation? And so these are our two questions, and the first is this. What are elders? And in this passage, it gives two interesting questions of what an elder is. Paul says that an elder is, first of all, an officer in the kingdom. And second, elders form community. These are the two things that they're an officer in the kingdom, and then what they do is they form community. And so first of all, elders are officers in the kingdom. Now look at verse 1. I love this passage. Uh, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, as Paul's answering this question, you know, there's people in the church that are take, suing one another, and the way that Paul answers these questions is he takes them into this future world where he says that Jesus is coming and he's bringing a kingdom with him. And when Jesus comes and judges the whole world, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring peace to the world. You know, we live in a world that's filled with so much misery and so much fighting and so much discord, and Jesus is going to resolve things. You know, that's what a, a judge is in the Bible. A judge is like a sheriff who comes into a town that's been, you know, run over by criminals or robbers and everyone's living in fear and hiding in their houses and the sheriff comes and kind of puts things to peace and everyone comes out and they start planting their gardens again and everything's put to right again. That's what a judge is. And it's very interesting that it was a real important part of Jewish apocalyptic literature 
that the saints, the righteous, God's people, were going to play a role in the judgment of the world. And actually, just a month or two ago, we were looking at uh, Matthew chapter 19, where this is exactly what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, you have Jesus talking, there's a new world coming, where he's going to set all things right. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying you, can't, you have these little financial matters that you can't resolve and yet you as the saints are going to play a role in judging the world. And he actually has this great line where he says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? You're like, what? You know, it's just a throwaway comment that Christians are going to judge angels in the world to come. And you know, actually I have to share this. Um, when uh, uh, Lily Lim was born, and uh, some of you know the Limbs, Art is an elder in our church, and when their daughter was born, I always go, you know, with a family, I pray with a family, and read a scripture to them, and I read this scripture to them when Lily was born, and because, and I said, you know, this little infant is going to one day judge angels, and what a strange thought, but what Paul is doing is he's stirring up their whole imagination to see what God is doing, and to see who we are as God's people and what his purposes are for us, and the level of wisdom that he intends to give to people among us, and especially the elders who are going to play this role of resolving disputes. And, um, and, And, you know, this is how kingdoms are set up. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the important themes in the Old Testament is the theme of the kingdom. And if you read through the story, you'll know that David and Solomon became the great kings of the Old Testament. And in those stories, one of the important things that they do is they set up this administration where they have, you know, generals and secretaries and recorders and scribes and priests and all these men who are overseeing things that are under them, overseeing all these different aspects of their kingdom. And, and it, a similar thing happens if you go even further back into the Old Testament. When Israel, they were slaves in Egypt... And if you know the story where Moses takes Israel out of Egypt, he saves them, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and Moses is just getting dead tired because he's resolving all these disputes among all these just tons of people that have come out of Egypt. And, um, and uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to him in, in Exodus 18 and says, Moses, you can't handle all these people. You need to appoint judges who are going to help resolve the disputes that happen among your people. And so he has these people under him that are elders who oversee different groups of people in the kingdom. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, I want to read this to you. This is a little bit of a long passage. In the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses describes what an elder did in the Old Testament. This is what he says. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men. You hear how they're described. Wise understanding and experienced. And I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously Between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him, you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. So actually, if you've ever wondered what an elder does, it says in the Old Testament, they do the work of reconciliation. 
When people are fighting with one another, they help them come to peace and resolve disputes. And so that's when you come to the New Testament, if you've read through the Bible, you come to the book of Acts, when the church is starting, and the Apostle Paul is going throughout the Mediterranean, he's planting all these churches, and all of a sudden, Acts 13, it says that they elected elders and laid their hands on them and appointed them to oversee these churches that were being planted, churches just like ours that were being planted. And if you're just reading the New Testament, you say, what's an elder? And the answer is you're supposed to look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives you this rich vision of what an elder does. And, um, and I'll tell you, in a kingdom, an officer in a kingdom has a special access to the king. Right? You might think in, you know, in our society that uh, you know, the president has his cabinet. He has certain people he's appointed under him to help his administration. And do those officers, officials, have special access to the president to make requests? Yeah, they do. And that's actually true as well in the spiritual authority that when Jesus is establishing his kingdom, he has officers under him who play an important role in building his kingdom throughout the world. Now, of course, does everyone have access to Jesus? Yes. You know, you think of the president. Does the president's children have access to him? Yes, they do. But his cabinet also has access to him in ways that even his children doesn't, don't. And, you know, I'll just tell you, uh, over the course of being a pastor these last six years, that's been a startling thing to me, that Jesus expects me to bring your lives before him and the things that are happening in your lives to pray for you. And you have these elders that God has put over you that are are there to pray and to go before the king and to pray and to care for you and to show, show concern for you. And, you know, in, in Jesus' teaching about elders, we, we looked at this a few, uh, a few months ago in Matthew 18, where he says that, you know, if someone has a sin, you bring it, you know, you go tell the person if, if they're sinning against you, and if they don't listen to you, you bring one other person, and if they still don't listen to you, you bring it to the church, and we talked about how that's the elders. And when two or three elders are gathered in Jesus' name, he says, I'm with them, and I will listen to their prayers. And so Jesus listens to the prayers of the officials in his kingdom. And so what that means is that you have an important role in who is being called to play this role in our church as an elder. And in that passage, you maybe pick that up in Deuteronomy 1, Moses, you know, Moses is a big shot in the Old Testament. I mean, there's no one who's kind of a more important person in the Old Testament than Moses. And Moses says, I didn't pick the elders. The congregation picked the elders, and then he appointed them. And that's the same for you that these are, are, are men who are going to govern in your life, they're going to have spiritual authority in your life, and for you to think about who are they, if we're going to have a healthy congregation, and their calling, it's not just that they say in their hearts, you know, I feel like Jesus is calling me to this, that's important. It's not just enough that the other elders say, yeah, we think that you'd be a good elder, which we've done with these three men that we're, going to elect, that we're, uh, that we're doing elections for this evening. We have said that. That's not enough. You as a congregation need to say, we see the spirit of wisdom in these men and understanding and experience, and we want them to be our elders. So you play a vital role in their calling. And so elders are officials, officers, in Jesus' kingdom. That's what an elder is. But what do elders do? And this is the second thing about what are elders. Elders form communities. They are in the business, in the work of community formation. And you see this here in verse 4. I say this, Paul says this, I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? What elders do is when a, a church is in conflict and people are fighting with each other and we just don't know how to resolve this, elders come in to resolve the dispute and to bring peace. And so their whole life is about holding the community together. They're like this bridge, this glue that's trying to hold the community together because we know that we have all come here with sin. We, we're going to sin against each other. We're very realistic about this. And you know, a great example of this, if you've read through the New Testament, there's a little letter called Philemon, written by the Apostle Paul, that was written to a man named Philemon who's a slave owner. And one of his slaves had actually run away and had become a Christian, Onesimus. Um, uh, and Paul was sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And he writes this letter with him and he says, I want you to receive him. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. And what Paul is doing in this great letter is that there are these two Christians who are at odds with each other. This slave has run away and he's just, this man thinks he's my property. And, and so they need to learn, he needs to learn how to view his brother. And yet Onesimus has to do this risking thing to go back and be reconciled to his master as well. And Paul is kind of standing in the middle as one who brings two Christians and reconciles them and brings peace together. And this is what elders do. Elders create community. And I'll just tell you, the elders in this church, that is the majority of the work that they do. You know, we have these meetings once a month that are somewhere between three and five hours long. And the, all of the energy, all the prayer, all the thought is going into how is this community a healthy place? How do people feel loved? How do they feel like they're growing in the Lord? And, um, and that's the work that elders commit themselves to is making is building the church, shepherding the people, resolving disputes, um, teaching. And so it's a work of reconciliation. And I'll just tell you, especially that work when Christians are fighting with each other, that's especially difficult work. To step into the middle of conflict and to be present in that conversation. And I'll tell you, most of us don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with conflict. We want to run away from it. And yet, it's the role of elders to be present in that conflict. And, uh, you know, I should mention one other good thing about being a Presbyterian church. We have this thing called the Book of Church Order, which I'm not going to take a you know, raise of hands of how many people have read the Book of Church Order. But uh, the Book of Church Order, you, you might not think of this as a very interesting thing, but as a young man who's planting a church and starting a community... And then to have this book of church order that tells you how to resolve disputes, how to run the court and hear cases as a congregation, it's immensely helpful. So that you do it in a way that is fair, that is just, and that cares for people. And so one of the questions, of course, with this passage, though, is Paul is talking about Christians not taking other Christians to court. And so that is a question, should a Christian ever take another Christian to court? Should they ever sue them over you know, some, you know, some uh, matter that's happened between them? And you know, of course, Jesus' pattern that he gives that I just mentioned is that if you have a conflict with someone, you go and talk to them individually, you try to work it out. If that doesn't work, what do you do? You bring one other person who is a mediator. So you try mediation. If mediation doesn't work, then he says you go to the church, which is the court of the elders, and they and you to find arbitration, and they make a ruling on it. And I think that uh, Christians could f resolve far more disputes 
if they took this passage seriously, and actually um, uh, the Supreme Court Justice Scalia wrote, back in the 80s, uh, he wrote uh, um, an article, and this is what he says. One of the reasons, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distress and anxieties. Remedies for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. Now listen to this. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. And so our court systems are run over because we don't resolve disputes here in the church first. We haven't taken the church seriously. And I'll tell you one reason why it's so important to resolve our disputes here is because one thing that happens in the courts is your heart is never dealt with. Sin is never dealt with. And the reality is that all of us, when we have conflicts with one another, there's all kinds of things on both sides of anger and sin and bitterness and resentment that we are bringing into that. And very often when we go into the court system, it just aggravates all those sins, sins and increases them. But, uh, but in the... Uh, sorry, what I, what, I lost my train of thought. Um, in the, oh, but in the church, when we come before elders and we bring our disputes before the elders, the elders can talk about our hearts. They know us. They can, they can talk about our sin and we can actually grow through those disputes. And the, the spirit of reconciliation is something that God uses uh, to grow, form Christ in us. And so this is a difficult work of guiding our community in love that elders must do. And so that leads to the second thing that we need to ask. What should be their character? What kind of character should we look for in our elders? And there are two things in particular we see in this passage. That elders are supposed to be wise and elders are supposed to be like Jesus. And you see this, first of all, in verse 4. I've already read this a couple times. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? And so the main quality of an elder is wisdom. The people that you should trust to make rulings in your life that are worth submitting to are people that are wise. And I'll tell you, you know, in this passage, it seems like the issue are financial disputes that are happening. You see that there in verse 7, where Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already of defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And it appears that there's financial issues that have come between these Christians. And, you know, I think that's a question for us to ask as, as a congregation, you know, I was uh, doing a discipleship curriculum this last year, and the guy who had written the curriculum asked this question, that imagine yourself that you had a financial dispute with someone else in the church. And you went to the elders and said, we have this dispute, we need your help to resolve this. And the elders look at all the, uh, you, you know, they look at all the evidence, they hear both sides, and they make a ruling against you. And they make you pay to the other Christian, and you know that the elders were wrong. What would you do? I think the vast majority of us would say, well, I'd leave the church. You know, I just lost this money. Money is very personal business, and the church getting into my money matters, and then they made a wrong ruling, not in my favor, I would leave the church. But most of us, if we went to a civil court and had them resolve a dispute, 
and they made a ruling against us, what would we do? We would submit to it. It would maybe be hard, but we would submit to it. And so it raises a question for us, is how much, how do we view the church and the leadership that God puts over us? And this is why it's so crucial for us as we elect elders to think about, are these men that are wise that we trust, that we would trust with a ruling like that? Um, the elders are not a board who makes decisions about, you know, what kind of coffee we're going to have after church. They don't make those kinds of decisions. It, it's, it's much more profound decisions about our spiritual life. And let me just say this. If you're a member of Christ Church, this is one of the vows that you took during your membership or if you were baptized into our church. Will you submit to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? And this is why, take, so take care of these elections. If you're a member, be sure to be here. But this raises a question, what is wisdom then? Okay, we're supposed to look for wisdom in men. What is wisdom? And you know, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul has actually defined wisdom for us. It's one of his great sections in 1 Corinthians 1 where he talks about the cross, and this is what Paul says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what, if you, Paul says, if you want to know what wisdom is, you look at Jesus, and you look especially at him on the cross as he dies for his enemies, and this is the last thing that we see about the elders' character, is that an elders are supposed to be like Jesus. That is, their lives are supposed to be Christ-centered, formed by who Jesus is. And in a couple of ways. First of all, what that looks like is it means that they care for the weak. You know, one of the issues of what's happening here in Corinth is in Corinth, we know uh, from other documents outside of the Bible that the Corinthian court system was deeply corrupt and that it favored those of high status and wealth. And so oftentimes, the wealthy would bring the poor into court, and the courts would rule in their favor. And so what Paul is going to say here in 1 Corinthians is you should be different than the world. You're going to go before those unrighteous judges. You're going to bring these status differences from the Corinthian world into the church. No, the church should uphold the weak. And actually, later in 1 Corinthians, there's going to be a place where Paul's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Where at the Lord's Supper, the rich are getting drunk on the wine and the poor are waiting on them and serving them. And so these, these uh, social status distinctions have been brought into the church. And so one of the things is that those who are like Christ honor the weak. They're impartial in their rulings and they're fair to all people. But the second thing about Jesus that we, see, that we should see in elders and the mark of the character of Christ is the willingness to be wronged. That is a mark of wisdom, is that you are willing to be wronged. And you see that there in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? And this is a picture of Jesus. Is that a category for you, that if someone wrongs you, if they wronged you in a financial matter, a church member, that you could let that go? You know that it's unjust. 
Or are you entitled to that money? The only possible way that you could let that go is if you know that the debt that you owe to God is immeasurable, that you could never pay it off, and that Jesus paid it for you. He was wronged in your place. He was innocent, and he suffered on your behalf. And it is the cross that is the wisdom that ultimately holds together the church. And so as we uh, prayerfully enter into these uh, elections this evening, uh, we ask that the Spirit would give us men who are marked by Christ himself, whose minds and hearts have been shaped by the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word, and we do pray, as our church grows, that we would be healthy, there would be peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. And even when we have conflicts, you would guide us through them, and we pray especially that you would give us godly men to lead, to shepherd, to teach, to rebuke, and to be examples to us of Christ's life. So give us your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.